I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. This week, we're celebrating inclusivity in emergency management as we mark the 28th anniversary of Americans with Disabilities Act being signed into law, protecting the basic rights of individuals in our country who have disabilities. Disasters can have an immense impact on everyone. But imagine a situation where you relied on a wheelchair or specialized transportation, but it was washed away in a flood. How would you get where you needed to go? What would you do if your daily medication required refrigeration, but your home was struck by a long-term power outage? These are daunting scenarios for people with disabilities, and just a few among thousands that could occur after an emergency. These situations are exactly what FEMA is working through and preparing for in coordination with other federal, state, local, territorial, governmental partners, non-governmental organizations, the private sector, but most importantly, individuals with disabilities. Those who know better than anyone what they need when it comes to staying safe before, during, and after a disaster. FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination, established in 2010, was the first in the agency's history dedicated to ensuring that the needs of people with disabilities were factored into all operations. I wanted to sit down with the director of FEMA's Office of Disability Integration, Linda Mastandria, to hear from her about the progress made through the influence of the Americans with Disabilities Act to improve inclusivity in emergency management and where we need to go from here to ensure we're best serving all disaster survivors. Okay, Linda, thank you so much for joining me here on the FEMA podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. Linda, you have a fascinating personal story. Uh, we, we chatted about this earlier today, but it, it goes back to the Olympics. And so I wonder if you could tell me about how you got into Paralympic racing and what that was like. Sure. So I grew up with cerebral palsy. And uh, when I was growing up, there was no such thing as adapted physical education. So often I was sent to the library or study hall. So I really didn't know that there were any opportunities for kids with disabilities to play or participate in sports until I got to college. I went to the University of Illinois for college, and it was there that I was introduced to the sport of wheelchair basketball. And that, um, it opened the world to me. Um, I, it, it changed the way I looked at myself. It changed the way I saw myself. I went from seeing myself as this kid with a disability who sat on the sidelines to somebody who could play, who could participate, be part of the team. And wheelchair basketball didn't ultimately turn into what was my Paralympic sport, but it opened the door to this universe of sport for people with disabilities. Was wheelchair basketball sort of a intramural sport there, or I mean, was there an organization that helped build that community at U of I? There was an organization. University of Illinois was actually the first wheelchair basketball program in the nation, and it was started um, with veterans coming out of World War II. So eventually you moved on from basketball and went into track and field, right? I did. Yeah. So um, basically basketball kind of taught me that though I wasn't a great basketball player, I was actually pretty fast up and down the court. And one of my teammates encouraged me to try track. And so I did. And um, kind of right out of the box, uh, I was pretty good um, without much training. And so then I started to think, well, wow, if I train at all, you know, what could happen? And the more I trained, the better I did. And the better I did, the more I wanted to train just to see how far I could go. And ultimately, I made two Paralympic teams, 1992 in Barcelona and 1996 in Atlanta. 
and won some gold and silver medals and had some world records to my name at one point in time. They've all since been broken, but I owned them for a while. So, And uh, what was your event? I was a sprinter, so primarily the 100-meter, 200-meter, and 400-meter. I can imagine what it's like um, for sprinters in, in the Olympic Games and now in the Paralympic Games. How is that different um, on, the, on the track? So uh, the important thing to remember about the Paralympic Games is that there's different disability categories. So there's folks who are blind, folks with cerebral palsy who are running, amputees who are running. I competed in wheelchair racing, right? So sprints look a little different, right? Because you're not sprinting out of a block when you're sprinting from a wheelchair. And the primary difference really is at the start, right? When you have somebody exploding out of the blocks, that's super fast. And with a wheelchair, you've got this, you know, object that you're trying to get moving in addition to your body. So the start is slower, but the acceleration on the finish is faster. So is there some, uh, like, bumping in racing? I mean, is it dangerous? I mean, so in sprints, it shouldn't be because you're supposed to be in your own lane. <laughs> oh, so you stay in the whole lane the whole way, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Right. Because in, well, I guess in the 100, in, you stay in the same Exactly. Lane. So 800 and further, then there's the chance for, you know, for disasters. And there have been some pretty significant crashes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm amazed by that. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, does the University of Illinois have a, uh, a strong support for people with disabilities? Because Tatiana McFadden also went to U of I, and she's she also an American marathon Paralympian. Mm-hmm. So is there something about the University of Illinois and maybe Illinois where you grew up that really supported people with disabilities? Yeah, the University of Illinois in particular, the program that Tim Nugent started um, around the athletes or the World War II veterans, rather, was really not just about sport. It was about reintroducing these young men to life, right? And so it was through the mechanism of education, preparing them for jobs, for, uh, for families to be part of the community again. Sport was kind of a vehicle to get them there, but he convinced the University of Illinois specifically to have an education program for returning veterans with disabilities. And they've built on that foundation, and they're really kind of known as, you know, as, uh, as a mecca, really, for students with disabilities now. So after you um, finished your Olympic career, where did you go from there? So I became a lawyer, uh, practicing in various facets of disability law and advocacy, from special education to vocational rehab to Americans with Disabilities Act, Rehabilitation Act work. Um, I worked for the state of Illinois for a while, had my own practice, and then from there I um, transitioned into working in emergency management. So how did you make that transition to emergency management? What, what drew you to emergency management? So it was actually an opportunity um, through a friend of mine who was getting involved. Uh, he had a small business and and he primarily worked in, a, in the arena of accessible voting and so would outfit polling places with accessible machinery and polling places and signage and things like that. And he uh, was getting involved in, in seeing if that would translate into outfitting shelters, for example, with the equipment that he was using and uh, invited me to become part of some discussions around legal requirements for sheltering and people with disabilities and things like that. So that sort of opened the door to the emergency management universe for me. And then I got hired on to some consulting contracts because of my legal background, um, became acquainted with FEMA and the reservist program, became a disability integration advisor reservist, and then took this job two and a half years later. 
Were there any significant deployments as a reservist? You know, for for listeners who don't understand, you know, FEMA has a number of different employment opportunities, and one of them is a reservist where you're able to work sort of part-time or just work when we're calling upon you to go to a disaster and help survivors through the process. So as a reservist, were there any significant disaster deployments that you recall or that offered a, a specific challenge in the way of disabilities? Yeah, I mean, they were all significant in their own way. I was pretty much deployed throughout 2016 and the early part of 2017. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I did uh, and my, my first deployment was Shreveport, Louisiana, and there... Oh, for the floods. Mm-hmm. And there I was really heavily involved in going out with DSA, Disaster Survivor Assistance, and providing advice on registering survivors with disabilities. And so, you know, that was really an eye-opening experience to me, kind of meeting people where they were and understanding the size and scope and, and the impact that disasters had on people with disabilities. And, you know, in very real time, understanding it. So I think we're going to get to this, but when we talk specifically about registering for FEMA assistance, is there something, um, th- is there something unique to people with disabilities as it as we look to registering for assistance, and how do we so- sometimes overcome those challenges? Yeah. So I think some of the challenges are when you move to web-based technologies, you know, and and this isn't necessarily unique to people with disabilities because lots of people don't have access to technology or networks are down in a disaster, things like that. But if somebody, if, if their screen reader isn't working properly or, you know, they don't understand the language or the questions are unnecessarily complex or they can't navigate you know, the form by themselves. These are challenges um, in terms of the technological application. Um, but in terms of applying for assistance generally, I think um, understanding, you know, how to answer the questions and, and what they mean and, and what that means in terms of the kind of as- assistance that you're eligible for, you know, these can all be challenges. And and I think these are things that we work on over time, understanding kind of where the hiccups are and the pain points and where maybe, you know, language needs to be changed in a particular question. And that's one of the things that we've worked on um, as an office with, with um, IA, for example, is looking at the questions in the registration process and how can we, in a more meaningful way, get at the information that we need to better help that survivor. So now, has the time that you spent in the field working with survivors, has that influenced now your work as the director of the Office of Disability Integration that is located here at headquarters? How has that influenced your your thoughts on the position up here? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And I think it's influenced my whole approach, really. I think, first of all, um, from the outset, having that experience and, and really understanding what FEMA is about and who we directly impact and benefit was invaluable. And I think, you know, uh, as an aside, I think everybody in FEMA should have that experience and go out and register people or touch survivors directly, you know, because I think that really helps understand what we're about and why we're doing what we're doing. But in terms of shaping the office and our approach, it's really understanding the needs of people with disabilities and and seeing where are the gaps, what are the most significant difficulties that people face in recovering. You know, is it the registration process? Is it a problem with evacuation? Is it post-disaster housing? You know, is it the temporary housing? Is it returning to long-term housing? 
Is it a lack of affordable, accessible housing? And what, you know, what can we do to impact those things? I mean, FEMA has a very, you know, defined role in this whole process, right? There's a lot of other agencies that play a part in long-term recovery. So this week, the uh, Americans with Disability Act is celebrating its 28th year of existence. So how does the, the act itself influence the work that you do? with um, the Office of Disability? That's a great question. So for me, um, you know, I, I look at sort of the my history and why I got into disability work, and it was really wanting to make a difference in the lives of people with disabilities to have, you know, to, to enable people with disabilities to have the same access to the rest of the world that everyone else does, right, As just as a matter of course. And the law, it's a piece of paper, right, so it's only as good as what you do to implement that law, right? And so how I want to use that law in the context of my job here at FEMA is really looking at the intent of the law. And the intent of the ADA was really about integrating people with disabilities into the fabric of society, right? And you look at the title of my office, the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. So we're really about the same thing. It's about integrating people with disabilities across all of the programs and services that FEMA offers, whether it's at headquarters, it's in the field, it's in the region, right? And really then extending that further to ensure that our state, local, territorial, and tribal partners are also working to integrate the needs of people with disabilities into all of the programs and services they offer relative to emergency management. So let's talk about uh, after a disaster when a, a community is looking to rebuild and would potentially be using FEMA dollars uh, through, say, the public assistance program, which is rebuilding public infrastructure. And, and, the, sa- and the same would be the, true for the state as they use those dollars. How can we influence the way that those dollars are used um, to make sure that the, that integration is being um, considered? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the things that we're working um, very closely with our folks in public assistance on right now. Um, I think uh, the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination has been uh, traditionally very heavily focused on individual assistance, not so much on public assistance. And I think public assistance is really where we can get um, better bang for our buck, you know, as it were, which is not to say that individual needs aren't important because they absolutely are and they need to be met and will continue to be met. But with public assistance, when you look at the billions of dollars that go into rebuilding Puerto Rico, for example, right, you look at the chance to influence the shape of a community for decades or hundreds of years to come by how you rebuild it and how you can make it usable to everyone instead of, you know, rebuilding a disaster-damaged element of a building, right? So let's say my house is damaged and I elevate my house and I'm a wheelchair user, so you put a lift to my house. So now I can access my house but now all my neighbors' houses are also elevated, but they don't have lifts. So now you've taken me out of my social element, right? I have no access to my friends and my community anymore. If you turn that on its head and rebuild using inclusive design principles and universal design and making things usable 
to and beneficial for everyone from kids to seniors to people with disabilities to parents with strollers, right, and everybody in between, it changes the nature of how people interact. It changes by its very nature um, how included people with disabilities are and can be because they're not excluded by artificial architectural barriers. So part of what needs to happen is just really looking at, as we use these dollars to rebuild, um, looking at it from a, a much higher level. It's not just building by building, but let's look at it community by community, tying elements together, making sure there's accessible sidewalks, right? Um, making sure that, that our green spaces are accessible, that people with disabilities have access to a newly rebuilt park, looking at cultural institutions. Uh, when you rebuild a damaged museum, what about making the exhibits accessible to somebody who's blind or deaf, right? All of this can be done. And so it's just reshaping the way we look at what we do with these dollars and expanding beyond this notion of sort of a minimal level of compliance and, um, you know, again, just kind of looking at it from a disaster damaged element focus and looking at it in a more holistic way. So I want to break that down a little bit. So at some point when I was younger, we didn't have accessible sidewalks, you know, throughout the city of Chicago. And over time, they started adding more and more. And now you, they're everywhere. They're, every street corner has uh, every sidewalk has a sidewalk access. How did we come to that level of um, integration into just the way that city codes are done? Um, and then how do you build that farther into every public assistance project is, is integrated the same way? So that's also a really good question. And I think, you know, as you pointed out, this, that wasn't always the case, right? Um, sidewalks and, and curb cuts and, and things like that are something that's, that's happened. just one small example. No, right? right. Yeah, that's one example for sure. But I think, I think there's kind of a multifaceted thing going on. Um, if you look at, you know, a generation or two ago, people with disabilities weren't educated in public schools. They were often warehoused in institutions or they stayed home, right? So there wasn't a, not, a lot of need for public accessibility because people weren't out. Um, if you look at the advent of the independent living movement, late 1970s, early 80s, when uh, primarily UC Berkeley, I think, was where things kind of started and then it spread across the country, it was people with disabilities kind of really, um, and their families kind of realizing, hey, you know, we have the right to be out in the community, we're part of the community and we want to go to school, we want to, you know, go to a movie, we want to go to dinner with our family, we want to do all these things. and and started to organize and advocate for um, better inclusion and, and better practices and policies. And I think that in turn is some of what sparked some of the change, you know, in the legislation and the codes that then allowed for curb cuts to be built or access to public buildings or public spaces, right? And that's kind of where it started with, you know, the Rehabilitation Act in 1973, which said that, um, 
federally funded entities could not discriminate and had to provide access to people with disabilities. Then you come to 1990 and the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that blew it out even further, which, you know, beyond federal entities and said state and local government entities couldn't discriminate, and public accommodations and telecommunications and employers. So it really took the principles underlying the Rehab Act and blew it out to cover pretty much every segment of society. And so if we take that a step farther, when we're talking about disaster rebuilding, you touched on this a little bit, but how do we, um, how do we encourage communities as they're rebuilding to, uh, to not just go to the minimum level of com compliance, but then to build to even smarter ways? And, and what are some examples of those? Yeah. So I think part of the message, Mark, is that when, you know, you look at one of the one of the things that we talk about at FEMA is resilience, right? It's building resilience after disaster or before, during, and after disaster. And if you think about accessibility and building accessibility, that's really building resilience. And let's look at it in terms of, let's say, a public housing project, for example. A public housing project that's built in an earthquake-prone zone. If it's built to earthquake-specific standards, right? Say, let's say you have 20 families that have a member with a disability living in this housing, which, because it's built to code, is not impacted by this disaster. These individuals now can stay home, shelter in place. They don't need to go to a shelter. Their services aren't disrupted, right? So it changes the nature of response, it changes the nature of recovery, it changes the nature of our resilience. Yeah, if they can stay in those buildings, then there's no need for them to move to a shelter temporarily, you don't have to find them temporary housing later on. Well, that's an incredible resiliency story right there. Um, so just as you were a reservist at one time and now here at the headquarters office, you have members of your team that are deployed around the country at all different disasters. Can you give us some examples of some of the things that they're working on uh, right now in the field? Sure. So um, as you point out, Mark, we've had people deployed, you know, since last summer in essence, right, to Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Florida, Texas. And one of our really important roles when we deploy to a disaster as disability integration advisors is ensuring that the community organizations that work with folks with disabilities are tied into the response, that they are networked and, and connected to the programs and services that they need. So it could be, you know, unmet needs for somebody who is uh, whose wheelchair floated down the street or who somebody who lost their hearing aids or somebody who has issues with their service animal. So a lot of those sort of individual needs, you know, we are making sure the connections are happening. But part of, um, part of what we're looking to do now, you know, in addition to ensuring that we have these individual connections made and people are connected to their programs and services, is to really work um, across FEMA, across our programs and services to ensure that not only do we have a cadre of disability integration advisors, but that we create an agency of 21,000 disability integration advisors. So we're looking at building capacity and competency across the agency and across our state and local and territorial and tribal partners so that the needs of people with disabilities are first and foremost in everyone's mind across the emergency management landscape. And it's not just the responsibility of people with disability integration in their title to ensure that the needs of folks with disabilities are met. Administrator Brock Long has a very ambitious goal of developing a culture of preparedness, and that means a lot of things. It means everything from uh, financial preparedness of citizens around the country to communities 
really thinking about the next disaster that might impact them and starting to plan and prepare now for those. So how does that culture preparedness goal impact your office and the work that you do? And what are some of your uh, what's your vision for implementing that goal of culture preparedness? That's a great question. And there's a couple of things, really, that we're doing at the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination in concert with the goal of building a culture of preparedness. And one of those is really um, organizationally we're looking, again, at, at um, increasing our capacity to serve people with disabilities and to build up their individual capacity to prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters. Um, one of the ways that we're doing that is we currently have, uh, or will have very shortly, 10 regional disability integration specialists located, one in each federal region. Um, and we've decided over time uh, that really that it's a good start, but it's not enough to really effectively impact communities and help build that capacity that we need. And so we are actively working with the regions to uh, get additional disability integration advisors who will be responsible for each of the states and territories so that each state and territory will have somebody dedicated to them to uh, networking with the disability agencies and, and really identifying training needs and working to develop that capacity and help the people with disabilities in those states identify what they need to prepare and help them through training and technical assistance and advice and tools help them be better prepared so that they can you know really play a more active role when a disaster hits their state so that's one way and the other way really is training that we're looking to offer um, really across the agency, which is kind of building the culture of preparedness across the agency. And again, it goes back to my earlier point about sort of building an agency where we're all disability integration advisors together. The training that we're looking to develop is going to level set everyone to understand what the needs of people with disabilities are in disaster and how each program and service that FEMA has plays a role in meeting those needs and then how we can work together to meet those needs. So that's kind of building the organizational culture of preparedness. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a FEMA podcast topic, send us an email at fema-podcasts at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcasts.